also have returning guest Paxton Francis. So I hope you guys are in the mood for something a little different this week and I hope you don't mind as usual putting up with some spoilers and some coarse language. If you have any feedback to give Rank and Review I would welcome it. You can do that by sending that feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy the show, and feel free to seek it out on Facebook or on iTunes, and thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. So this episode is going to be dropping on Remembrance Day 2015. We're rolling. Yeah. All right. This episode will be dropping on 2015 Remembrance Day, lest we forget. <laughs> so, uh... Uh, we're taking a little bit of a detour, although uh, I've said it many times on the podcast, part of my, my purpose about doing this is to convince people that every movie is secretly a horror movie. <laughs> and I definitely think war movies, which we're going to be looking at this episode, can definitely qualify. They're certainly gruesome and at times, I think, quite terrifying. <laughs> Hard to call, honestly look at someone in the eye and call them horror movies, but I do find them horrifying. A uh, few things I just want to acknowledge, just to get off of my chest. Uh, my guest this week, returning, Paxton Francis. You can say something if you like. No, I was just sort of enjoying making you feel <laughs> space there. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little... I took some twisted pleasure in that. Hello, people in podcast land. I just want to acknowledge that we acknowledge and realize that Remembrance Day, which is sort of like a... An acknowledgement of veterans and soldiers who died fighting under the crown of Canadian and, and British. And None of the movies we're talking about is going to directly sort of reference what Remembrance Day is sort of purposed for. And That's we, true. We know this. We mm-hmm. acknowledge this. But I do think part of Remembrance Day is the horrors of war and sort of honoring that. And the movies you've chosen are all definitely horrific. Yeah. But yes... Uh, Three of them are Vietnam films, which, you know, Canada had no part in the Vietnam War. (gasps) Really? And, uh, you know, there are two World War II films, but neither of them involve Canadian forces. I don't believe Canada's mentioned in either. (laughs) No, no, we're on the wrong beach in Saving Private Ryan to be seeing Canadians. Yeah. And then, uh, oh yeah, Mogadishu, Somalia. No Canadians in Black Hawk Down. So... 
it's weird. Historical epics, especially war epics, just have this added weight of truth and importance to them. So they're like kind of Oscar bait movies. But I hear this argument made increasingly that war movies should maybe be dismissed and retired because they always, um, whether they mean to be or not, sort of become propaganda pieces. Yeah. Who says that? Well, it's just a, a, a pop, pop, popular theory that's being posited mm. about. Mm. Um, well, any of the movies that we're watching tonight, none of them take a ver- paint a very positive picture of war. I wish I could like attribute it to a specific person, but there is sort of a theory that just by the nature of pointing at a light and a camera at something, you're in some way glamorizing it, mm-hmm. or romanticizing it, or somethinging it, making it not real. Yeah. And uh, that's sort of the dangerous line you walk. So you need a really seriously minded and strong filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing about the movies we're talking about this week is that it's a director masterclass episode. This is like only the second one we've done so far. So feel special, Paxton. Aww. But uh, well, it's also only the second Paxton episode you've done so that's far. True. So it's double special. <laughs> it's very special. It's special for both of us. <laughs> but yeah, there's just an. Uh, a room, like just a crazy gallery of amazing directors here. Uh, Terrence Malick, Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick, Ridley Scott, um, Oliver Stone, Coppola. I missed Francis Ford Coppola. War movies, director masterclasses. Is there anything you want to say by way of introduction before we introduce the films and start talking about them? Just this. War. What is, what is it good for? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Say it again, Larry. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about, just for the cheap seats, Apocalypse uh, Now by <laughs> director Francis Ford Coppola. Di- yeah, quote-unquote director <laughs> yes. in this case. Um, the Thin Red Line from T- Terrence Malick. Sort of strange fellow there. <laughs> Another hot mess. Uh, Black Hawk Down from Ridley Scott. Full Metal Jacket from Stanley Kubrick, Saving Private Ryan from Steven Spielberg, and we're going to finish up with Oliver Stone's Best Picture winning, Platoon. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Let's do it! This is the end. 22 years ago this summer, Francis Ford Coppola created a groundbreaking masterpiece. This summer, he's taking you further with an entirely new version Featuring a wealth of footage that's never been seen before. Everyone gets everything he wants. I wanted a mission. And for my sins, they gave me one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River, pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba, and terminate the Colonel's command. Terminate with extreme prejudice. You can get any place up that river that suits you, young captain. But we're specifically today going to be talking about the Redux Thank that was you. done yeah. in the what late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, it was released in the early aughts, when the yeah. word Redux was on fucking everything, <laughs> um, and it is uh, incontrovertibly a fucking mess of a movie. <laughs> the the re-edited. There's a reason that there was an over an hour of shit cut out of that movie. There are problems in the movie that are in both of them, but I think that the problems are accented in an extended cut. It's 202 minutes long. Uh, I'm just going to throw out a few fun facts, and then we can dig into the plot. But uh, it's hard for me to separate 
this movie from the production. There's a, a very famous, it's as good as the movie itself, documentary Hearts of Darkness, Hearts of Darkness yes. about the making of this film that Coppola's wife made while, while it was going on. Um, well, he neglected her for 16 months. Yeah, that's true. They were originally planning to shoot for about six weeks in the jungles. They were there for 16 months. Um, Martin Sheen was drunk and lost for like three months. They were looking for him. It was being it was in post and being cut and, and hacked together for three years, and for a lot of that time, Coppola was fairly sure he'd made a catastrophe. A disaster of a movie. Yeah. There is a famous six-hour work print that was stolen and apparently exists somewhere, mm. which is exact, actually longer considerably than like the reader. twice as long, yeah. Um, but wow. I do think it's significant, and you mentioned this too, Pax, that it is called the Redux. It is not called the director's cut. No. This takes out sequences that were very well shot, very well made, but were righteously cut from the movie. And that I think Coppola would say yeah. is, should not be in the movie. Yeah. So I think that's going to weigh it down a little bit. It is an amazing movie in a lot of ways as well. I feel like I've been talking shit about it, but we haven't even rolled up our sleeves. No. It is an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. Yes. And uh, it is set during the Vietnam War. And it is, of the movies we're talking about, perhaps the least implicitly, about the experience of war itself. It's more about the experience of madness mm -hmm. and uh, using the madness of Vietnam as sort of a backdrop and yes. anchor. I think war. Full Metal Jacket gives it a run for its money as not being directly about the experience of war. Yeah. Uh, Apocalypse Now, it, I agree with everything you've said so far. <laughs> you may continue. It's uh, 1970. Yes. Martin Sheen. Martin is Sheen is a man named Captain Willard. He's a special forces guy. It's his second tour in Vietnam, I yes. think. He's, which already implies there's something wrong with him, because who wants to go back? He's an assassin, and he is called upon by some mysterious figure from the CIA and a general, and Harrison Ford is there for Han some Solo reason. Han Solo himself. And Han Solo tells him to go and kill... Uh, a man named Colonel Kurtz, out in the middle of Cambodia somewhere. He's not just sort of gone off the grid, he's gone out of his mind. <laughs> That's right, he's, he's living uh, across the border in, in neutral Cambodia with a group of Montagnard soldiers. Now, they, uh, I had to put it in closed caption to figure out what the hell they were saying when I, last time I watched this. But they're uh, uh, people who are indigenous to central Vietnam. So he went native, and he's yeah. got a, his own little private army, and he's no longer answerable to the United States of America. So they want him dead. Yeah. And that's basically our setup. Uh, what is unspoken, and what's interesting, is not something that was spoken about or really diagnosed at the time, but really clear to me in this viewing of the film, mm -hmm. is that our essential character is suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome really fucking badly. Yeah. And, <laughs> like, and uh, he wants to die, too. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Uh, and yeah, like, the, there's something about the madness of war that seems to have a calming effect on him. He seems worse off alone in his hotel room than he is. You know, the opening line of the movie, right? He yeah. wakes up to the, to the ceiling fan in his hotel room thinking in his delirium just as he wakes up that it's uh, the blades from a Huey. Yeah. And as he realizes, the first words we hear him say are Saigon. Yeah. Shit. So, I'm still just uh, what I've been here a week, and I'm still just in fucking Saigon. Our hero is halfway to Kurtz when we meet him, 
And I think that that was the original shape that John Milius was attending for the script. Mm. Uh, when we get to the ending, we'll have to talk about it because that's where I think it starts to get very problematic for me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, <laughs> the our basic is a quest. We we find we get it sort of a get this boat to this river and then get this boat up this river and then mm -hmm. kill this man Kurtz yeah. and we go on this epic sort of psychedelic odyssey. That's basically the plot. Yes. Right? And it's sort of, there's a lot of chapters, sort of stories and, and misadventures that happen along the way, but that's the basic story. I, yeah. I, I find it hard and, to believe and that's what it shares in, hasn't seen the movie. Exactly. That's what it shares in common with Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Is the trip up the river to assassinate the rogue uh, agent. Yeah. And, you know, that's an interesting premise for a story. And it's buried in a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay. Some of which is very, very interesting, right? Robert Duvall, for instance, yes. his cameo, The Air Cav, is, uh, you know, that's the piece of the movie that everybody immediately thinks of, is The yeah. Flight of the Valkyries. And it's a very memorable performance. Everybody loves, you know, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Charlie, don't surf! This is the one piece of thing that was uh, added to the Redux, and I can't even attribute it entirely to myself, because I, I watched a documentary on the film, sort of preparing for this podcast, but... Mm -hmm. Um, I remember clocking it, watching it, and I didn't remember that it wasn't in the original film. But there's actually footage in the Redux of Duvall helping some of the villagers. Yes, I noticed that and thought, I've not seen that before. Onto the helicopters and clearing Little the Little girl, right? Yeah, Little he, baby girl. He is humanized more in this Redux version, and I think to the better for his character. And that's one of the scenes that were added that I, I welcomed. But the, <laughs> the theft of the surfboard and the chase when he comes after them with the air cav shooting at them for his surfboard is also yeah. added back in in the Redux, Correct. I believe, right? Yeah. So there's a whole lot extra that we get to know about whatever the hell his name is. Uh, <laughs> I jotted it down somewhere here, but I'll be Kilgore. Kilgore, yeah. Real subtle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and again... It, a lot of people are mad, and a lot of the scenes are mad. But the, For anyone who hasn't seen the movie, for the one person listening who hasn't seen the movie, just so that you don't turn off the volume, uh, he's Robert Duvall plays the leader of this air mobile... They Once upon a time were a cavalry regiment. They got rid of their horses. Now they ride around Vietnam in helicopters, kicking ass and basically doing whatever they want. He's this invincible figure. <laughs> yeah, and he's obsessed with surfing to the point where he'll go and shoot up a Viet Cong base and under fire hold off the enemy on a beachhead yeah. while his soldiers go and surf just so he can vicariously enjoy them catching waves. Yeah, and He's uh, crazy. And Martin Sheen knows uses this fact that, that he loves surfing to exploit uh, the situation. One of the guys on the boat is a surfer, and that's sort of an in for him and the group to Lance. get them to where they want to be. Once Ultimate Lance is surfer on board, <laughs> yeah, we're going to get your boat to wherever the fuck you want it to be, and we'll go out of our way for you. That's right, they, they carry the boat with the helicopter <laughs> and just set it right down in the river for them, and then they steal his surfboard. He's, yeah. the, the betrayal, yeah. he feels so betrayed. Uh, the cinematography throughout the movie is unbelievable. Absolutely. Uh, I remember being a little kid in the sequence where he's running through uh, all of these dugouts looking for to find the man in charge. Are you in charge? And the yeah. frightened soldier says, ain't you? That's yeah. burned into my brain mm -hmm. since I was just a kid. Uh, amazing stuff. And all of this sort of preamble to where the movie really honestly starts, where the boat starts its way down the river. Yes, which is... 
God, 40 minutes, 40 minutes in, maybe more. Depending on the version you're, you're watching. Well, you're, oh, yeah, you're two hours into the movie and you haven't met Kurtz yet. Yeah, but the, this is another one of these things, and we've had this argument before, Paxton, where I think this movie has to be about the journey, <laughs> not yes. so much the destination. Absolutely. <laughs> Particularly when the destination is a crazy old halfway washed up actor who actually wants to destroy your film because of what? Yeah. Before we get to Marlon Brando and Dennis Hopper, and we're going to have to get there, yeah. I just want to say for the record, I love everybody on the boat. Yes. I, I, love, I love Chef, yeah. who is just way too human to be in Vietnam. Yeah. He's so affected by everything when they shoot up that whatever the heck that, that Sam Pam or whatever the boats are called. He's like this, this guy from New Orleans who's a cook. and All he wants to do is cook, <laughs> yeah. man. That's all he wants to do. And out, he's out in Vietnam getting attacked by tigers and shot at by anyone. He's doing the best he can, learning hard lessons, never get off the boat, Paxton. Yeah. Mr. And, Clean is yeah. the youngest Larry Fishburne I've ever seen. Yeah, when he still was not ashamed to call himself Larry Fishburne. That's right. And uh, then the chief... Uh, is somebody else I recognize, but I couldn't tell you where he's from. I just know that he's one of those people who's been places. And yeah, the surfer that we mentioned, Lance. Lance. Uh, I don't have the castles in front of me, but everybody's awesome, and I, I, I like them, and you know that these people are not going to survive this journey, and each one of their losses hurts. Yes. It's really well put by Lawrence Fishburne himself in the documentary uh, Hearts of Darkness that his memory of the movie was that he was a kid, and that was kind of the point. Is that it was just all over his head. He was just this kid who was doing what he was told, and he yeah. took a bullet because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, know? the chief seems to be the only one other than Martin Sheen that has any concept of the ship that they're yeah. that they're sailing toward. So I love that boat. I love the journey. I even love the preamble, like the Robert Duvall stuff. It is very, you know, it sort of seems like the, the, the engine's just getting started on the movie, and they spend a lot of time on it, but I'm not bored by it. No. Yeah. I am bored by, well, I'm not bored by the USO show, but I was definitely bored by the extended USO show where right. they just they catch in into the Playboy bunnies later and have sex with them and we get to learn about a couple of the strippers' lives where they, blah. We don't care. Uh, yeah, the, this gone. isn't Heart of Darkness, nor is it Vietnam. Let's get back to what this movie's about, please. There's a famous French plantation scene where they find this island of seeming normalcy but these people are all living in this bourgeois life mm -hmm. unspoiled pretending that they don't live amongst this chaos and right. as a result of that are as crazy as anyone else it's an interesting but unnecessary chapter yes uh but i will take it over where this path leads yeah which is dennis hopper and marlon brando mm -hmm. <laughs> do you want to get there or do I, am i jumping no let's get there <laughs> let's get there my brain was on uh, a small tangent. My brain was on a small tangent about how, out of the three Vietnam movies we're talking about, or out of in, probably out of all six of these films, I think if you were to show Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket and Platoon to like your average soldier who fought in Vietnam between 1965 and 1970, it's sort of the heart of the war. That Apocalypse Now, if if none of them had ever seen or heard anything about these movies. Impossible, yeah. but indulge me. That that would be the one that, that guys would probably feel least able to, to connect to. Yeah. Because it, it it's very loosely has anything to do with Vietnam. 
right? It's just a that's just the setting for this horror story. That said, in 1979, when this came out, there were a few things that this movie was telling us cinematically or via Hollywood that people didn't know before. Most uh, controversially, the extent of the drug use. Yes. Of the American soldiers. Which I mean, this movie. Um, even though it has less to do with Vietnam than either of those other two, mm-hmm. Full Metal Jacket and Platoon probably would not have been made if it hadn't been for Apocalypse Now six or seven years before them. Yeah. Right? And so, they're I both mean, very, I get the very pluses heavily and minuses that. I totally get what you're saying. Yes. I do want to get to Dennis Hopper and Marlon Brando. Let's do it. Uh, um, Dennis Hopper was sort of uh, the final trajectory of sort of the last big splash before he actually repaired his life <laughs> somewhat. But at this point, he is out of his mind on drugs and unable to learn any of his lines. Mm-hmm. And basically, they, they shook a performance out of him. But there's barely a character there. We're just seeing a fucked up Dennis Hopper, not a real performance. Yeah. And it's pretty obvious. And it's sad. And it's, it is. It's sad. It's kind of sad. I find it sad watching Dennis Hopper uh, in this movie. The happy ending to this is it took him until Hoosiers, which was like 10 years later almost or whatever, to sort of be recognized that he's actually working, someone you could work with again. Yeah. And in the interim, and he, he actually turned into a genuinely decent filmmaker. And in Hoosiers, <laughs> he just kind of played himself. He yeah. this crazy old washed up <laughs> drunk who had some talent buried under the alcohol, but yeah. you had to dig for it. Aside, I'm, I'm much happier to talk about... <laughs> About that, but unfortunately, we, we got to get to Marlon Brando. Absolutely. He's one of the most respected actors in the world, and I just got to say... Why? Why? I mean, I'm biased because the bulk of the work I've seen with Brando are basically Apocalypse Now on, or Godfather on, I guess more accurately. And uh, he's good in The Godfather, but I think the makeup is a lot of the work for him. And all the stories tell, told, you know, is that he had the lines were actually pinned to people's shirts on the sets so that yeah. he would bother to learn them. And at least then he would still follow the script and still play the character. Mm-hmm. He would just get more and more eccentric and more and more demanding. He took a million dollars from Coppola and then threatened to walk because of the delays in the shoot, you know, and not return the money. And then he showed up not in shape, not learning the lines. Yeah, like, not, not just not in shape, but wasn't he like 60 fat. pounds heavier than yeah. they wanted him? And like they understood that this was going to be a rigorous shoot, that he should be prepared for it. And On location in the jungle. Not only had he not read the source novel, but he hadn't read the script and refused to. How do you get through like high school without reading? Did, didn't we read, read Heart, Heart of Darkness in yeah, high school? I have. I didn't read it in high school. 12th grade, maybe first year And I'm not a particularly well-read person for an English major. But anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah. Marlon Brando is working against this movie, as he will for the next two decades of his career. He seems just to be a force against the creative process of filmmaking, who actively, you know, will vamp his way through these performances. And I don't see anything here to justify him the greatest living actor. No. And I could dig back into his career to find out why. He's certainly not the greatest living actor anymore. No, he's not. But, like... (laughs) I do not get the respect for Brando, and he hurts this movie a lot for me. He doesn't sink the ship. I still like the movie, and I would still recommend it. No, but it comes but. damn close. I mean, there's one thing that there's only one thing in the movie that's as important as us understanding and being able to tap into Captain Willard, and that's Kurtz working as a character. Yeah. Right. The story is only about these two men. As much as I like what's going on in the boat, yeah. they are filler for the confrontation between these two guys. And 
uh, most of the main plot thread of the story is actually going on in Martin Sheen's head as he's reading the dossier and sizing this guy up as they sail up the river and he looks through the manifesto and tries to get inside Kurtz's head. And then that just kind of doesn't pan out anywhere because Marlon Brando's not actually in this movie. Yeah. This epic quest leads nowhere, and it's unfortunate. Because Kurtz has some, like, he's clearly deranged. Yeah. But he's not entirely wrong, right? When Sheen's reading his manifesto, Kurtz is saying things like, um, you know, we, we could win this war, but only with a smaller, more committed force of people, right? We'll never beat, as long as there's rock and roll and drugs and beer and USO shows, we can't beat these people. They're too determined, right? Now... That's still silly, because how are you going to motivate a bunch of American teenagers to go fight for a bunch of rice patties that they've never heard of before? It's ridiculous. But his point is, you know, it can be done and changes need to be made and those changes make sense. But I would like to understand more about how Kurtz went from there to leading a crazy group of freaky cannibals in the middle of Cambodia. And there's no way to crack that code, not in the improvised pretentious dialogue exchanges that happen for the last half an hour or so of the movie. Yeah. And uh, famously, Coppola despised Milius' original end of the script, which was after killing Kurtz when the helicopters came to pick up Martin Sheen. He opened fire on them and it basically full on, you know, followed Kurtz down the path. Willard does. Okay, yeah. yeah. That was the original ending, which Coppola hated and wasn't going to do. But even as it might work better, right? Well, I it mean, seemed like it was a journey to somewhere. Then, like it or not, it, it it would lead us somewhere. Well, yeah, because then it would work as we didn't get to see how Kurtz went crazy, because unbeknownst to us, we were watching how Kurtz went crazy the whole time by watching Martin Sheen, it right? But the fact something. that Martin Sheen doesn't become Kurtz at the end undoes that whole yeah. thing. And and the, and the. The folly of the ending is sort of mirrored again with the production. Like, mm-hmm. how do you spend millions of dollars and years of your life and put your house in arrears and bring your family to this place to make a movie that you do not have an ending for? The fact that this movie works as well as it does or at all is amazing. But it does. And it demands being watched just because of the crazy folly madness of it. Yeah. But when we're talking about war pictures... I'm sorry, I know a lot of people hold this in high esteem. It's not going to rank as high as some people think it should for me. And uh, I love me some Apocalypse Now. Particularly this extended version. Yeah, and again, Redux. Redux. I I think that if we were reviewing... Now, the other version isn't as fresh in my mind, because, you know, it's been years since I watched the other version, the theatrical cut of the film. But, yeah, I think it's going to alter not just my perception of the movie in general, but this particular ranking. I think uh, my list would be different with the theatrical cut. In this world, a man himself is nothing. And there ain't no world but this one. I've seen another world. Sometimes I think it was just my imagination. If I go first, I'll wait for you there. On the other side of the dark waters. Why should I be afraid to die? I belong to you. We're going straight up that hill, Edgar. How many men do you think it's worth? How many lives? 
nowhere we can hide except in each other. Go! Go! I killed a man. Worst thing you could do, nobody could touch me for it. Make no difference who you are. No matter how much training you got, how tough a guy you might be, you're in the wrong spot at the wrong time, you're gonna get it. I want you to attack right now with every man at your disposal. I've lived with these men, sir, for two and a half years, and I will not order them all to their deaths. Okay, moving on in this director of Masterclass, the horrors for a uh, controversial figure, uh, Terrence Malick. Uh, I don't know, I, I'm... I'm of two minds of him. I I think that Badlands is an amazing movie. Bad, I've only seen it once, but I remember being thoroughly impressed. And it's another just fantastic Martin Sheen role, and I think it's it's one of the things I can wholeheartedly endorse. Mm-hmm. It's also the only Terrence Malick film that I can wholeheartedly endorse. He's considered a master director, but I don't know if I put him in the same category necessarily as these guys. But I won't argue that he is in the same what category. What was the farming one called with Richard Gere? Days of Heaven. Days of Heaven. I remember very little about it. I, I remember not liking it, not being as engaged as I was with Badlands. But I don't want to tip your hand in this, but the attention to sort of nature and the importance and distinction of our role and our effect in nature and, and our seeing ourselves reflected by it is sort of played up to a ridiculous, pretentious level in a subsequent film we made called Tree of Life. Mm. in which we see a segment involving, I shit you not, dinosaurs. And a dinosaur comes upon another dinosaur which is dying, and you think he's going to eat him, but at the last second he spares the dinosaur and moves on. Now, Thin Red Line does not ever reach that hilarious level of pretentiousness, but it's... I know this is a podcast, but everyone should know that my face is all scrunched up because my brain hurts. <laughs> I didn't make my that up. My brain hurts, I Larry. didn't suffer some like, sort of mental seizure of aging Oh, I think I might have. <laughs> Mild stroke over here. Uh, and I do think you can be heavy-handed with this art wank symbolism. Uh, and... On the other side of the coin is, I think that he paints beautiful fucking pictures. In a way, his movies a lot of the times feel to me like sort of National Geographic studies of like people, but like the, in the same detached, beautiful way that you would see in a documentary in an IMAX film or something. And I think it's the those opening shots in the thin, thin red line are almost intentionally of that nature, right? I, do we know if he cast those villagers? Because my feeling is that he went and found a Polynesian village and filmed them for a few days. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that's what he did. But because I he's, that, he's but just that kind of crazy, yeah. right? I mean, this is... I remember at the time being excited. He'd been out of movie making for over a decade. He'd just disappeared. And I, I remember you and I being very excited about this movie when it was getting ready to come out and thinking... Um, What's he going to bring to the What's table? What's he going to bring to the table? And, uh, wow, it was not quite what I expected. Well, here's the thing. Like I said, there's the two sides of the coin. There's sort of the arty pretentiousness and those sort of beautiful images. And I will say that Thin Red Line brings both of those. But I will say I think it brings more of the beauty than of the pretentiousness. They're both present. And unfortunately, they're most sort of articulated in the Jim Caviezel character who's our main character. 
who I find who isn't really much of a character. I find impenetrable almost to the point of unlikable. And I find him unlikable. Uh, it's it's troublesome because he is the person that Malik eventually shows us to anchor with. But uh, I'm going to put the ball in your court here. Uh, I've sort of <laughs> my entire review is going to be sort of emblems of that. But this really Fair worked enough. for me. This didn't. But uh, please, where do you where do you land on the thin red line? Well, my impression of the movie, we, Larry and I just rewatched the thin red line. For me, it was the first viewing in over five years. I know you hadn't seen it for a while. Uh, and I gotta say, the movie's not as mixed up as I remembered it. Was it, it was sort of feeling like homework a little bit when we sat down to watch it, and it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a hard watch. It no. It wasn't a hard sit. If you were to mute somehow just the audio track that contained all of the really sort of ethereal, floaty Narration. narrations from several different characters and it's often unclear whether you're listening to Jim Caviezel or whether you're listening to Benjamin, what's his name, Benjamin Ben Chaplin, ben Chaplin. Um, I think the movie might actually just work better yeah. if you did that and it might not feel so lost in time the, I, I lost my train of thought earlier when I was trying to say that at the time when the movie was being made I remember reading before it came out that it was not uncommon for people to show up on set and Malik to throw out the shooting script for the day. And yeah. they would just, like, he'd have a new idea and on the day decide, no, we're not shooting that, we're going to do this. And that comes across in a few places in The Thin Red Line. I don't think we would be out of line in saying there's a lack of focus. There is the a lack of focus. The fact that there's, like, multiple different cuts of the film before we, it was released, some as long as four hours. Which apparently you were telling me aired at, at Cannes yeah. just once? Yeah. Uh, before it was sort of wi widely released. It, Adrian Brody apparently uh, famously was at a premiere of the movie. He had family that were there to see him. It was a big Hollywood production. It was a Terrence Malick war movie. And he had a big part Role in it. Role of a lifetime. And he'd been all but cut. All, almost all of his speaking... All of his lines have been cut out of the movie. And he found out there. And I think Fife, his character, speaks once, yeah. twice. And somehow, with those two lines, Adrian Brody manages to develop a character that is, to me, more interesting and sympathetic than our protagonist. Who seems... I mean, you're going to pound on, away on this, too, but he seems... Just twos. He seems almost amused by everything that's going on around him. Like, like he knows that there's, he's, he's got the, he's super religious, right? It, I get the impression Zen. that his character is not just Zen, but he believes that none of this is going to affect him, that, that this world isn't the real one, that he's going to an afterlife. And he certainly comports himself as somebody who doesn't much care about what's going on around him. Now, I don't mean he doesn't help out, right? When somebody gets hurt, he acts, that kind of thing. He's, he's not... A nihilist, but but he's hyper compassionate to whatever's immediately in front of him. Yeah, but at the same time, he has no problem for some fucking reason looking into the eyes of a man who, on more than one occasion, has laid his life down for his compatriots, 
Sean Penn's character I'm right. talking about and tells him I'm twice the man you are I can take anything you can dish out I can out. take anything you can dish out and he and says this to a man moments after he has basically saved him from being put in the brig right Sean know? Penn is the sergeant who runs uh, he's been AWOL uh, Jim Caviezel's unit and he's been AWOL living on an island it's implied that this was not the first time that he ran off that's a an, an offense that's punishable by a gunshot to the head yeah. and Sean Penn gets him out and into a disciplinary unit. He's and in the, stretcher duty. They land on Guadalcanal, you know, the, every, the small island in the Pacific. This ended up being a turning port point in the war, blah, blah, blah. You've got Wikipedia. You can look up the Battle of Guadalcanal. Um, fascinating, long, bloody mess. But uh, once he gets onto the island, he hooks up with his old unit and sort of falls back in with crazy Nick Nolte. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the movie turn, becomes energized. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting. The the, uh, the voiceovers go away, and yeah. for a little while we get to actually watch and listen to the same thing at the same time, and it becomes really engaging. Larry and I stopped talking yeah. and start like, we weren't just talking through the whole movie, but yeah, I was much more engaged all of a sudden when they get to the island, and it's not just because it's action sequence. Yeah. There's... The most beautiful shots in the movie are, like you said, National Geographic quality nature shots of these beautiful grassy slopes. The difference is, in National Geographic, there aren't any period specific soldiers creeping through the grass getting ready to shoot. But it feels like it's being watched with almost the same detached eye. Yeah. And that's what's kind of interesting about it. And I do think that it is the, the sequences of combat and war, the business of war, that is nailed. In this Absolutely, movie. and uh, that really worked for me. Um, and uh, you know, going back to where we started with the Caviezel character, uh, the fact that he is a wall, and that he did flee from his his group, and that he has contempt for you know his commanding officer who likes him and and is good to him, uh, it it works against it. When we shift away from Caviezel, when we're talking about Elias Cateus, you know clashing with Nick Nolte because he doesn't want every man in his squad to be killed. Right. You know? uh, I'm, I'm all on board. I'm all on board. And uh, it, it, it really frustrates me because you know that this was sort of something that he was feeling as he was making and yes. that he was making choices. And it, and it is definitely a choice that the first thing we meet out of this Jim Caviezel guy that we're supposed to relate to, I guess... Is him saying this to Sean Penn? We don't know the context. Right. We just know that he's been caught doing something very against Bad. military law, and that this CO, even though he doesn't like him, respects him enough to save his ass. Yeah. And then he looks him in the face and basically says, fuck you, I'm a better person than you. And then I keep waiting for the rest of the movie to see why he thinks that, and, and never I never see it. it. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sean Penn is like running through enemy fire just to give morphine to a mortally wounded man who yeah. he knows he can't even save his life. He's willing to take a bullet just to lessen this other human being's pain. And yet he's disgusting somehow. To he's Jesus. somehow disgusting to Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Caviezel plays Jesus in The Passion we, we of the Whip. We kept on referring to him as Jesus. Sergeant Jesus, Private Jesus, whatever it is. It frustrated me because... Sean Penn says to him, like, you're, you're just another mouth to feed. You're just another person for me to deal with. And he's right. He says to him things like, I've, I kind of feel sorry for you because this place is going to kill you. The, way you. the way you carry yourself and the way you present yourself is, is, in this world is not going to play out. 
everything Sean Penn. And ultimately, it's not only, he does. You know, it's not only die. compassionate, but one hundred percent accurate. So again, why why all the judgment? Why? I mean, I, I I'm wondering. I'm the not judgment a very is because close, Sean Penn doesn't <coughs> believe in God. Yeah, I honestly think that the Jim Caviezel character is a Jesus freak. His character doesn't. It's never explicitly said. I don't think we see him with a crucifix. He's not like Malik is not beating us over the head with it. He's not counting rosary beads in the jungle. But what else makes sense other than he's just smug with the knowledge that he's going to the afterlife and Sean Penn isn't? And he does say to one of his dying soldiers that you know or friends that even if you die. It's going to be okay. He doesn't seem to be uh, scared scared of death, and that's why he wins, no. I guess. And the but, guy I want in the foxhole next to me is not the guy who isn't scared of death. So that's I'm, just I'm me. I'm wondering, Paxton, if this movie might not ring your bell more if you were a quote-unquote more spiritual person. I'm not... I mean, I, I'm a philosophical person, and I like to wonder about things and, like... I don't like to say I'm not a spiritual person, but it just uh, this doesn't resonate with me, and maybe it will for other people. But as far as I'm concerned, spoilers when our our Zen, you know, Jesus figure is again we could we could unavoidably see in Caviezel dies at, towards the end of the movie. I felt nothing. Uh, I felt I, more. I was kind of happy. <laughs> I felt more about Woody Harrelson dying. Yes, who's in, he has like, what, six minutes of screen time? Yeah. He accidentally pulls the pin on a grenade during a battle and has about that long to realize it and throw himself against a wall so that the grenade doesn't kill everyone else. And then, like, we actually, most of his screen time is spent dying in agony. Yeah. And, like, this is the caliber of filmmaker that Terrence Malick is we weren't the, the only steam. people because excited everybody about lined up to be in this movie yeah. like John Travolta's in the movie for 30 seconds yeah. George Clooney's in the movie for, for Sean Penn bumped into Terrence Malick and said I'll do your movie pay me one dollar and tell me where to be Yeah, anywhere in the world and I'll be there Yeah, like people so, wanted to work with this man and the thing is is that for all the hype I it's worth it. It's again. I feel like much like with Apocalypse Now, we're sounding more negative than maybe we should. I would not tell someone that they shouldn't see this movie. No. I would just, you know, like that. There's stuff that really works for me, and there's stuff that really doesn't. But it is worth it. I don't like. I don't think I'm supposed to like them. Is the thing. Malik's that kind of filmmaker. He's not allowed to put something on the screen with the intention of you not liking it. Yeah. I didn't like the cutaways to the like. Animals. Dying bird, or the cutaway to the wilting flower, yeah. or there's bullet-riddled leaves, or whatever. There's got to be a reason he was so obvious and upfront with it. But the movie opens with uh, Jim Caviezel's narration about uh, pontificating about if there's an avenging power in nature, yeah. and if nature doesn't just uh, create, but also de- like destroy out of spite. I think. Yeah. And then that seems to be backed up by all the images of mangroves and things climbing over each other and killing each other. It, to the point where John Travolta, is it John Travolta who actually has a little soliloquy about... Oh no, it's Nick Nolte in one of his raging Nick Nolte moments. Oh, when he, oh, oh, look at that! Look at that tree over there in those vines! How they climb up the tree and swallow Nick Nolte! And unbelievable. Did I get too loud? It's <laughs> okay. Did I blow out the microphone? Uh, we, we enjoyed. There's something weirdly comical. I mean, he's playing it very straight, but the, 
big as life and twice as ugly. I love Nick Nolte mm-hmm. in this movie. He's, well, anytime he's on screen, I'm interested in the movie. Yeah. Definitely, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I dig Nick Nolte in that movie. It frustrates me the choices he makes. Like I know that there's there's a, a ton of footage he could do the Thin Red Line Redux, and maybe it would be better, maybe it would be worse. Who knows what the Adrian Brody character? But there was all of these just questions being asked, these like poetic wankeries that just didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we would kick into some action or we would see some characters in real jeopardy. And uh, over and above that, just celebrity spotting, you know? John C. Riley's in the movie for 30 seconds, you know? And, and the movie keeps losing momentum in, to itself. It gets in its own way. We didn't need six separate, I'm, I'm probably exaggerating, four separate flashbacks of Ben Chaplin's wife, whom yeah. he missed, and then... She dumps him. That's his character arc. That's the whole he thing. Mi- I miss my wife, then she wants a divorce, and I'm sad. But it's a good 20, the 30 end. minutes of screen time. Maybe yeah. 20. yeah, but like, yeah. And meanwhile, really interesting stuff is happening where Elias Kateas is putting his own military career and possibly life on the line, disobeying no, orders, because the orders are fucking stupid. Military. You just can't say no. You can't say it. And then, <laughs> interestingly, this complete babbling rage lunatic Nick Nolte actually comes like, to the fucking line. listens to him and yeah. comes to the line and interesting stuff unexpected stuff is happening and then we go have to listen to Ben Chaplin moan about his wife and or listen can, to Jim Caviezel moan about nature you can almost hear the brakes being hit when those scenes come but I do I sound know, really negative as I'm talking about it it's not even to say that any of that stuff is uninteresting it just so seems like it doesn't belong the in the movie that it's in. Yeah. One of the things that a lot of these war movies have in common, uh, and, and interestingly the first two that we've talked about don't, is a central character that we can really anchor with and identify with. Usually it's somebody who's new to the scenario, who's with what wide eyes coming into this horror. And uh, we don't have that in Apocalypse Now because our main character, as I said, is basically crazy when we meet him. And we don't have that, at least not through Caviezel here. No. Because he's not affected by anything. And if he's not affected by anything, why should why we should be? Why should we be? And Fife, on the other hand, looks like, from the glimpses we see of him, a he's character horrified. who's like yeah. super uh, affected by everything that goes on around him. Maybe that story was no good. I have no idea. I'd be I mean, less interested we'll in. I'd be less interested in seeing it. I'm sure the information's out there. I could seek it out and find out. Two quick things: um, the Thin Red Line has more in common with Apocalypse Now than any of the other movies on this list. Agreed. I think they're both dreamy. They're both shot on location. They're both gorgeous. Felt as much as they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and th- th- there aren't a whole lot of complicated sets. It's like go out into the world and shoot this beautiful movie. Um, Malik makes stylistic choices that I'm sure are intentional choices and I'm not saying they don't work so much as they make the movie less enjoyable to me and if I were making the movie I think I would have made different choices the movie shows us stuff that I want to hear about right? like there's a huge exciting uh, scene where they storm the top of the hill and they're running through the village and there's all this stuff going on and it looks horrifying and, and we can't hear a thing because it's all covered up by Score. by a score with absolutely no background uh, sounds and then other times we we are told stuff in narration that I would rather just be shown in interesting interactions between characters on screen that's where the movie suffers in my opinion and that's why it won't be at the top of my list 
because if if I were basing this just on how beautiful the movie is visually, I think the Thin Red Line would be a contender for number one on this list. And I think it might just speak to his power as a director, if not a storyteller, that in spite of all of the flaws that we can't stop talking about, I still recommend the movie. You shouldn't have come here. This is our war. Not yours. 300,000 dead and counting. That's not a war, Mr. Ito. It's genocide. These people, they have no food. We can either help, or we can sit back and watch a country destroy itself on CNN. Rangers, Deltas, today we go. Name? Blackburn. Date of birth? 22775. I was trained to fight. Were you trained to fight, Sergeant? I was trained to make a difference. So guess what? You're going out today. What? It's what you wanted, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Just remember when everybody else is shooting, shooting the same direction. What I can count on in Ridley Scott is that the movie's going to look fantastic. The movie's technically going to be very well made, and that he's going to bring a strong cast on the strength of his name. Yes. But and it he'll all, draw a budget. It all hangs on the script with Ridley Scott. He is not somebody who's going to be able to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear as far as the script. Few directors can. But as much as he is responsible for absolute classics, like Alien, like Blade Runner, you know... He has made some really problematic movies. It always kills me that he won Best Picture for Gladiator, which I don't really think is that strong a film, especially in sort of the canon of Ridley Scott. But, uh, yeah, it's all script. It's all script for me and Ridley Scott. So uh, that's where it was going to stand or fall. And I'm happy to report that with Black Hawk Down, uh, based on the, the source material of the, the novel slash memoir, uh, it's a fantastic script and a fantastic movie and the real sort of track that Ridley Scott seems to take is experiential war is terrifying and horrifying and you do not want to be there and uh, once things start to cook in this movie it is unrelenting and experiential and uh, it's just I, you can't take your eyes off it I can't and uh, it's it's aged really well like I my, I've always had a strong, high opinion of it. And it was one of those things when I revisited all these years later, am I going to think differently of it? And I think I actually liked it more. Did you? So, uh, I'm a fan of Black Hawk Down. But uh, so I'd love to hear where you watched up. <laughs> well, I, uh, where I, I agree with you about Ridley Scott. Um, I think Ridley Scott's heart just isn't in it like it used to be. He's... He's in his late 70s now, I think, and he he's slowing down a little bit, but he's still working just as much, <laughs> if that makes any sense. His film output is still up there, but as far as the meat and potatoes of what's in the movies he releases, it seems to be getting thinner and thinner gruel. Time was I'd get really excited by the next Ridley Scott movie, and then time was I'd catch up to it. And now Time has come now where I'm horrified. I them. Like right? I haven't seen Exodus. Like, don't make Blade Runner two. Yeah. Well, he's not anymore. Well, I guess he, there's a different director. He's now. not. But well, no one should make Blade Runner two. If you but ask me, he's making another Prometheus movie, despite what we think. <laughs> anyway, let's sort of pull the focus back on Black Hawk Down. Uh, this is based on events that happened in 1993 in uh, Mogadishu, 
That's right. One of the most violent, horrifying places on the surface of the planet in Somalia and Still East to Africa. this day, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, bad, bad place to be and a bad place to crash. Unless you're a pirate. Somalia is a pirate's haven. <laughs> I'm the captain now. <laughs> oh, Captain Phillips. Another day. Um, yeah, there's amazing people throughout this movie. There's, like, uh, a lot of good actors playing small roles. Uh, and uh, interesting, before you fa- they were famous caches, we were just... I recently watched it and I missed Tom Hardy. Yep. And uh, it's, a, it's a blinker you miss it role from Lego. Oh, I've seen that movie s- six times now, I think, yeah. including the most recent rewatch for this podcast. Yeah, and, I want to uh, watch it again just to see if I can catch Tom Hardy. Yeah, Matt he Max plays Twombly. He's yeah. one of the three guys that get stranded apart from the unit. Yeah. I think that the character that we're most meant to identify with and anchor with is played by Josh Hartnett. Uh, Josh Hartnett uh, is sort of the, the most militarized guy. I think the guy that I anchored with more is the Ewan McGregor character. Uh, he's kind of an office drone. Grimesy. Yeah. He's not usually in the front line, but he talks a good game. Like, he's being wasted here. He's in a the typist. Back. Yeah. He's, he's a typist being, with a very unconvincing American accent. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, I love me. <laughs> I, I love the actor, but he's always a little iffy when it comes to his accent. But. Uh, I, I the like secret the, to good coffee is in the grind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I like the idea that he's sort of a, a bit of a blowhard. He was in the back and kind of liked being in the back, but maybe felt a little guilty about being in the back and wanted to see what it was like in the front row. And he gets front row seats. He gets his wish. A really shitty situation. Uh, basically, an extraction job that's supposed to last three hours ends up taking almost a, a full day. Is it? Uh, oh, more. Right. Days. Well, not quite two days. They're they, there overnight, and they get out late in the morning. Yeah, they they don't have gear to keep them warm overnight. They didn't bring water. They have a limited amount of ammunition. That's and, right. They uh, didn't bring night vision because they expected for the whole thing to take an hour. And they do. Bad you news. know, after the crashing of these two helicopters, they never leave a man behind. The situation changes. They can't just pull out. They've got to, you know reassess things and in the meantime it seems like every fucking person in the city <laughs> is converging on their location and is really pissed off <laughs> and probably not far from the truth because everyone in in that part particularly when they're near the Bakara market it's called the the sort of heart of Muhammad Farah Adid's uh warlordship um if you didn't work for him you were probably starved to death already Right, so the city was like a living army, and m- most men and women in, around that area did come after uh, the Rangers and Delta Force who were on the ground. Yeah, it was um, at the time in '93 when it happened. It was the biggest shootout that American forces had been involved in since the Vietnam War. Yeah, and the biggest sort of shitstorm they would see until obviously nine. It was a running gunfight that lasted hours. Right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it's still a pre-9-11 world, but it doesn't mean it's very, very it's still a very strongly militaristic one. Yes. Um, well, I, didn't, I, don't know, I don't know where even where to begin. <laughs> um, I love. Do we need ed- to do a plot outline? Well, Has everybody seen Black Hawk Down? It was kind of it, yeah. Yeah, there's two helicopters that crashed. There's supposed to be a ex- quick extraction. It turns into a long one. Yeah. I kind of anchored with the, the Ewan McGregor character because he sort of seemed like the fish out of water. The guy who was thrown into it and was maybe in over his head. Yes. And the first 
time I saw the movie, I remember we talked about this, I was really pissed off by the whole making coffee sequence. Yeah, I was really troubled by the, you know, the action didn't seem to let up. It was very intense and sort of situational. We would cut a little bit to sort of command, but even there, you know, men were dying. I think 18 people died in this skirmish, or 18 Americans died or something. Oh yeah, a lot more Somalis died than 18. But uh, I don't remember the, the exact head count. Uh, they're, they're, even even back at base, you know, no one's got their feet up. There's no sort of romantic subplot no. to cut to. Everything's intense. So it kind of bothered me all of a sudden everything stopped and this fucking idiot is making coffee in the yeah. middle of this. I was like, that is hackneyed in Hollywood. It is the I. only break we get in the movie, too. Yeah. But I really, like I said, how hackneyed in Hollywood thought I. Well, why am I a fool, Paxton? <laughs> well, I mean, these are real people, largely. It happens. It happens. This happened. They've got, <laughs> uh, it, it, more, more than the coffee for me, it bothered me when I first watched it that Grimes gets nearly blown up three, three times, times in the movie. It was and like, it's like a punchline. Um, yeah. It was almost like comic relief. Oh, Grimes almost got killed again. <laughs> but, you know, Grimes just about got blown up three times that day. Yeah. Uh, it maybe it didn't happen exactly the way it's depicted in the movie, yeah. but uh, it, it's one of, those idea, yeah. one of those cases of, of truth maybe being a little stranger than fiction. Yeah, and there's another little piece of comic relief, which coincidentally is uh, Ewan Bremner, who played Spud, uh, Ewan's co-star from Train Spotting, uh, being rendered deaf by having a gun discharged right by his ear several times. Yep. And that would happen. I get that, but it was a strange beat of humor and in a very humorless movie. Absolutely. But this is looking pretty hard for something to complain about. And like I said, when I found out that that shit actually happened, always forgiven. Really. Yeah. I. I. Uh find that whole idea terrifying it's Bud's what it, whatever that character's name Ewan is Ewan Bremner's the actor Ewan Bremner but that situation not only are you stranded in the middle of this alien city full of people who are going to shoot at you just because you're American you can't hear anything and you're deaf yeah right like, well, they might be sneaking up on you you wouldn't you know. would have no idea and he plays it very well yeah. I think and it adds to their the tension of what's already a really tense situation for them uh, Josh Hartnett does deserve some mention. I didn't mean to be so dismissive of him. No, uh, no. Th this was one of his sort of big sort of star first starring roles. And he, he did, uh, I thought, a fairly decent job of it. He, and uh, subsequently did 30 Days of Night. I thought he was decent enough in mm -hmm. that. Um, I believed him as a young go-getter idealist soldier. He does have that sort of stern school of Keanu expression. But I got him as a guy who was leading men for the first time. And you know, uh, was at once trying to prove himself that he was worthy of the job, but, you know, uh, by virtue of being thrown, the deep end of the pool doesn't say it, just into yeah. a fucking blender of shit. Yeah, because his actual leader has a seizure, like, that morning, and yeah. he gets thrown in charge of his chopper full of men. This is his, this is his first day at court, like, yeah. you know, it's sort of like when we, Charlene and I talked about, uh, United 93, the plot point that the, the dude who was running the air traffic control was... He's played by himself. He's played by himself, and it was his first day running the ship himself. Mm, yes. And, like, it seemed like such a contrived fucking plot point, but, but that's it actually happened. the truth, yeah. So, you know, and... There are all sorts of examples that, that we could give, but you'll just have to listen to other episodes. <laughs> that they'll pop up as needed. Uh, so yeah, I like the that. movie's made with the full cooperation of the U.S. military, and it shows. Yeah, uh, in a couple of ways. One, 
it's pretty jingoistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, there aren't American flags all over the place, but it's definitely a the movie no that glorifies the... The no man left fucking lot. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Eric Bana is sort of the guy who waves the flag the most proud of. The fact is, I just love Eric Banner. He's always going to be chopper for me. Yeah. Who's fucking leaving, right? So like. <laughs> right. So, and his whole, but his whole thing, his whole purpose in the movie is to deliver the philosophy that really what it comes down to is you're just fighting for the men around the guy you. next to you. And that's it doesn't kind matter of, about your orders. It matters about who's going into the shitstorm with you. But exactly. I don't 100% agree with that. I think that those orders matter. I think that if you care about the soldiers, you should care about why they're being put in, in, into yeah. that shitstorm. But in his defense, he doesn't say they don't matter. He says when the bullets are flying past your matter. head, yeah. it doesn't matter. And you know, I've never been shot at, but I have to imagine that it changes your outlook on a few things when Absolutely. you're when you're under <laughs> withering fire. It gets pretty real pretty fast. But the other way it shows the U.S. military's involvement is the incredible military shit that they do. Like they get some of the best U.S. Army helicopter pilots in the world to come in and, and they got the rangers to come in and do the all the fast roping scenes where they're being inserted in that's all actual u.s army rangers actually fast roping i don't have it's to kind say of it incredible to see because it's authentic because it's the guys yeah, yeah. uh for sure <laughs> uh but i understand people sort of being a little bit sensitive about that especially increasingly lately there are movies that basically produced as almost recruiting tools, and yeah. uh, that's another reason this propaganda a- argument comes. Mm-hmm. A very good friend of mine despises this movie and considered it like just an advertisement for, you mm. know, war and, 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 and propaganda. And uh, I, I can't agree with it because of how horrified I was by the movie. Yeah. I found it frightening. This did not make me want to run and fucking sign up. You know? I don't know if Ridley Scott thought of the movie this way when he was making it, but I think you can look at it as a piece of catharsis for what Americans and what the world saw of that shootout in Mogadishu that day were the bodies of two American snipers being mutilated and dragged through the streets and defiled on television, on CNN. And that was their price for nobly going in to try and protect the pilots. And it was left up to everybody's vivid, you know, up to everybody's imagination to imagine how the hell all of this happened. And Black Hawk Down does tell, beat for beat, the story of how those two guys ended up on TV and how Michael Durant ended up in captivity, etc. And I think there's a lot more being said by the movie than... Well, when the bullets are flying, it's all about the boys next to you. Yeah. And it's unfortunate to me that whoever you're talking about, I have a guess, but I won't, I won't <laughs> say his name. Um, uh, it's unfortunate Dismiss that to a lo- not just him, but a lot of people, he's not wrong that a lot of people watch that movie and get excited about war. Yeah. I'm sure that there are people who signed up for the army or the marines because Black Hawk Down got them super psyched and they like Call of Duty and all the blah blah blah. But throughout history, young men have wanted to go off and join the army and kill people. It's not the video games or the movies that make them do it. It doesn't feel like a prolonged action sequence to me. There's something about the intensity of it and the stakes. And the fact that it is a you know a real historical event that happened, it, it does have that weight to it. Yeah. I mean, it's just undeniably well handled, and it's sort of a little picture. It's, you know, I don't believe in getting your history from Hollywood, but I do think this is a very good example of that type of filmmaking and what it aspires to it, anyway. It does something that I you'll often hear me complain about 
historical movies that fictionalize stuff that doesn't need to be fiction. Now, I don't have anything against historical fiction. I love, uh, you know, the Patrick O'Brien, Jack Aubrey, Stephen Maturin stories, uh, etc. But you don't need fiction in this story, just like you don't need fiction in a whole lot of other stories. Titanic, yeah. right? And so there was nothing stuck in there. Josh Hartnett didn't have a 15-minute worth of screen time love affair going on just to make sure that the girlfriend would enjoy the movie. Like, give girls some credit. Very minimal <laughs> this is an interesting like story. That. You don't need the loving. Very minimally, the first 20 minutes of the movie, there's a few cursory things touched on like that. Like in almost every war movie, but it's it's basically a launching point, and everything's getting us to this. Yeah, this place. They, it's just giving us a little bit of human stuff, but there's no love interest. And we get the guy making a phone call to his wife. They don't bathe in it the way the Thin Red Line does. No, absolutely. Uh, Brass Axe. It's a very very strong movie, and it's a worthy and, and one of Ridley Scott's best pieces of work, and. Uh, one of the one of the best movies out there about quote unquote modern warfare, I think, or set in modern warfare, because it's debatable whether it's actually about the warfare itself. But watch Black Hawk Down if you haven't. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit. You will not like me, but the more you hate me, the more you will learn. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. Joker, I want you to get straight up some food by. Captain January will need all his people. Yes, sir. Get some! Get some! Anyone who runs is a VC! Anyone who stands still is a well-disciplined VC! <laughs> Seven six two millimeter full metal jacket. Oh, guest voice, Vincent D'Onofrio, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> the last time you were with me, uh, at least to record a podcast, Paxton, we discussed an obscure science fiction picture called 2001 A Space Odyssey. I remember that now. <laughs> by an equally obscure filmmaker named Stanley Kubrick. Mm. It's kind of interesting that we're coming back to Kubrick again the second time. Kind of and interesting that it's another Kubrick movie that's actually two movies and one of them's better than the other. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. That, that It is very much cloven in two. And in this case, yeah, there's one that is better than the other. In this case, I think it's the first half. And we argued that it was more the second. He does that a lot, like Eyes Wide Shut. You've got this one sort of shitty movie about Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman wanting to have sex with each other. And then this other much better movie where the credits roll because it's over. <laughs> it's finally, finally over. Um, well, that, that may not be a conversation for another day because that's not even in my collection. It's a horror picture. movie, though. Maybe somebody will give it to me as a gag <laughs> gift and we can re reference it. But Well, I, I gotta say, I have a lot of good things to say about Full Metal Jacket. And to say that the second half is not as good as the first half is to underwrite the fact that the first half of the movie is goddamn is amazing. dead brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it is fan-fucking-tastic. Just in case anybody's <laughs> out there thinking, man, these guys are just haters, fucking <laughs> hipsters on the internet, just nerding out about how shitty everything is. Get a life. Yeah. 
No. I love all of these movies, <laughs> but we're not here to just gush, right? This is criticism. We're picking through these brilliant films with a fine-tooth comb because our job is to decide which one is better than which, yeah. and that's hard because what's they're all be, good. What's going to be at six, what's going to be at one. Yeah. And uh, not to tip my hand too much, but this is going to rank high for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a personal sort of stake in it. I think it was one of my dad's very favorite movies. I remember watching it at way too young an age on the couch with him and being disturbed to the point of almost nauseous by the death of Pyle. Oh, uh, God. I was just utterly ruined by it. Yep. Um, I found it haunting. Like I thought that that, that dude's ghost was going to be haunting my house. Like It fucked me up, traumatized me. And as a result, I was sort of fascinated and fixated by the movie. Fixinated. That's fixinated. an excellent word, and I'm going to use it. I actually regressed to a child. <laughs> just fascinated just and fixinated. Memory. Fixinated. Uh, uh, copyright. Just to back us up for one moment, uh, the, this two-part movie we're talking about, the first 45 minutes of which is boot camp Correct. For, for a bunch of Marines. Uh, our protagonist is a man named Private Joker. He's dubbed by his drill sergeant, played by Mr. Matthew Modine. The perpetually underused and underrated Matthew Modine, He's I just want to say. fucking good in this movie, too. <laughs> this is the movie that sort of got him really, you know notice front and center but he's always been good he's always been around and just also the movie that got Vincent D'Onofrio noticed yeah. also the movie that got Mr. R. Lee Ermey noticed the no, now famous played... drill sergeant who yells at everything he was just hired as an advisor for yeah. Full Metal Jacket and, and uh, he spent the next 25 years of his career doing deprivations of the same role like, it's just did, like did you know that big chunks of that scene are just him riffing and improvising they just shot him for like an hour ripping these recruits to shreds yeah. and cut it together. Yeah. Barely half of that was scripted dialogue. Anyway, fascinating, excellent boot camp drama and Private Pile, the guy Larry was just talking about. Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio ends up killing himself in the bathroom because he's driven crazy by his inability to be a good soldier. He's not even, he's not even really introduced to the horrors or madness of war. He's driven mad by the system that and that's the process of making soldiers demands that the weak be torn apart yeah and in order for the rest of them to become soldiers they have to turn on him and rip him apart and that's what they do break them down and then build them up but he came in broken you know (laughs) and it's absolutely devastating and yeah i think that as much as i was just gushing over matthew modine Vincent d'onofrio and arlie ermy give the performances of the movie and their absence is felt yes when they leave we still have Matthew Modine and uh, his buddy, I can't remember the name of the actor right now, Arliss Howard, I want to mm-hmm. say, uh, that sort of helped tether us to the second half act of the movie. But it really does abruptly seem like we, we watch another film. Yeah, and Modine uh, almost was... Almost a sequel film. It almost feels like we left and went home and then came back and watched a different movie. Yeah, and that Joker's not... Like, Joker is so connected to uh, Pyle. He's sort of the only one who seems to care to help pile in any way Uh, he seems detached from the movie itself in the second half of the movie like maybe that is intentional it makes sense right that it's uh, an experience that traumatic might make you disengage from the whole thing a little bit or it might be the numbing effect of what's going on i mean the movie is about joker witnessing what war does to normal healthy people and how it rips them apart and the example of that in the first half of the movie is Private Pile, and in the second half of the movie it's these 
brutal soldiers that have been turned into killing machines. And we talked about the theme of madness is in, in like Thin Red Line and especially Apocalypse Now. Yeah. This is sort of Kubrick's take on that, a much more cogent Kubrickian eye mm-hmm. on the madness. And like I say, it, 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 it's not just war, it's the whole institution. The, the whole machine that shapes these guys into killers. Yes. We're being we're making you into killers. He screams at them unabashedly. And, and then we watch what happens when you make killers and turn them loose. What do you do with these instruments? And what happens when they're pointed in the wrong direction? Uh, he gets pissed off when he's giving everybody their placement and everyone's going to the infantry. Joker gets this weird, obscure number roll call and he's doing field journalism. And Hartman's pissed off at this. You think you're some kind of fucking writer? You're a killer. That's what I... You You came here to be shaped into an instrument of death, and that's what I goddamn did, right? So Joker is separate from everybody else in that newsroom because, you know, he's meant to be out there fucking getting his teeth bloody. Murdering you know? people, like, yeah. So I get that. What I think that we haven't mentioned, and what I think is the real lever into the movie for me, is that in spite of all the horrendousness, in spite of all the madness and the violence, this movie is very funny. (laughs) Yes. It's like, I laugh out loud several times every time. And it's not an easy laugh. It's not always a comfortable laugh. But it is a genuine laugh. Give me a couple moments to make (laughs) you belly laugh when, when you watch it. Oh my god. Well... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to put you on the spot. I do enjoy the... The, the whole sequence where Joker's being chewed out by the commanding officer over his wardrobe choice of having yeah. the peace symbol and then born, born to, to kill, kill written on his helmet but a peace badge sort of put on his yeah. helmet and uh, just some of the, the lines of dialogue I wanted to be the first kid in my street to say that I got a confirmed to get a kill. confirmed kill. I wanted to go and meet people yeah. from a uh, distant and I wanted to travel the world and meet interesting people and kill, kill them. Kill them, <laughs> exactly. And this dry, brutal, devastating, harsh uh, humor, mm-hmm. which is throughout it. The, almost everything that comes out of the mouth of Arlie Ermey, like, you wipe that fucking smile off of your face or I will gouge out your eyes and, and skull, skull fuck you. you. Like, <laughs> I believe wow. that might be the original instance of I'll rip off your head and shit down your neck, too. <laughs> they cracked the books on this. Like, Quentin Tarantino and David Mamet were, like, studying this about, like, where, where they could, you know, put more fucks into a movie. <laughs> but funny and counterbalanced with, like, how horrible the thing is going on. I kind of need that laugh. Yeah. I, I find it relieving and it makes it, it's a real help for me to like deal with this horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> they're all like arguing over who gets to be first to fuck this horrible prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> and so well, the they horrible, need the laugh too, right? The horrible casual racism amongst the group that you'd think would, would lead to a bloody fist fight, but everyone else is just. We're at war, They're just buddy. okay with it. The best example of which is when Animal Mother, played by Mr. Adam Baldwin, is that the, the Baldwin who plays Jane. it? The man they call Jane <laughs> from Firefly. Uh, when he mutters to, he says it to the black soldier right yeah. next to him, God bless the sickle cell, yeah. right? Reference to sickle cell. And anemia. everybody laughs. It's yeah. like it's fucking crazy. And the, the black soldier doesn't even seem bothered by it, right? That's just Animal Mother. And, like, he even sort of, like... 
I guess when you save someone's life, you you uh, buy yourself a pass to say that kind of shit. Yeah. But he even recognizes that, like, yeah, Animal Mode is crazy son of a bitch. We're just glad he's on ours. He's our, he's our crazy he son of talk, a bitch. He may talk shit to me, but I, I'm glad he's got my back, basically. Yeah. But um, I do think that that is a very... All of the movies have moments of humor, but this borders on being a, just a funny movie, and that's a weird thing to say about a movie that is this tough and about Vietnam. Yeah, but it's not an abnormal thing to say about a Kubrick movie. Mm. He he does the, you know, he buries but humor But there's more Doctor Strangelove in this movie than you would, than fucking one would think. think on its face, yeah. Because everybody remembers the violence and the, and the horrors of the drill sergeant and... The that. cold, detached specificity, and like I think I said when we watched 2001, the fact that there's something weirdly hypnotic mm-hmm. about Kubrick, that absolutely remains, but to a positive stretch. It, it does, yeah. It the is flaw, cold and detached, yeah. and when I was watching Platoon recently, I was, and we'll talk about this more when we get to Platoon, but that um, Full Metal Jacket is feels like uh, a movie about watching uh, the Vietnam War and Platoon feels like a movie about somebody being in the Vietnam War, yeah. right? Joker is in the fighting and that sort of thing, but it, it, he's he's an observer for most of the movie. And, as and as Charlie well, Sheen is not an observer. Unabashedly, so he's a, he's a journalist. Yeah, it's a it's a more impersonal story than Platoon, is I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah. But it it's definitely funnier suits, than Platoon. And that's it's Kubrick's aesthetic, right? He yep. is all about sort of take backing up he's not that detached Malik guy it's not like he's indifferent he definitely is telling you something but there's something specific about Kubrick's choices yeah there's a cost to some of those Kubrick choices though and that is that the movie does on occasion feel staged Uh, I love the scene where the news camera is panning along the line of uh, soldiers and they're each saying something to the camera their own little bit and it's just it feels to me, it feels inauthentic. It feels like it's been written. And, you know, because normally, even though this is a tight-knit group of guys, generally 12 guys don't, like, do a running game. These are just soldiers, grunts in the field, and they're going down the line, each saying something increasingly funny. And, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm wrong about that, that but there are moments me- in the movie that feel a little bit staged because... It's a detached observing. I'm not really putting my finger on it. But. I'd be lying if I said that the, the the journalism bits took me out of the movie necessarily. Mm. I kind of liked the way how different the actors acted when the quote camera was on. And them. that makes sense because all of, there's a they're camera all performing. On them. Right? Yeah, they're, there's a camera on them all the time, right? It's a movie, but they're showing what they're acting like with a quote camera in front of them. Yeah. For me, the flaw, and I'm using air quotes when I say flaw in the movie, is this. Kubrickian structure, the fact that it is two movies mm-hmm. and not just like one. Finish a movie, there is brother. a lack of uniformity. Yes, we do have through line characters, but it feels like two movies and now and should that sink the ship and does it? No. I it think doesn't sink the ship at all. I think it's it is fantastic. It's just a pacing challenge and if you sit down expecting to for the movie to to uh, paddle you along like like more digestible films do, yeah. it doesn't do that. It doesn't need to do that. It's uh, it's very high on the list as far as Stanley Kubrick's work goes in my book. It's, it's a brilliant film, and it's one of his best. Dear Mr. Brian Boyd, no doubt by now you have received full information about the untimely death of your son, 
However, there are some personal details. Believe very strongly. No words of mine can ever. He was a fine soldier. Regarding the circumstances leading to his death, felt his loss tremendously. Robert's commanding officer's heroic service to his country. Great soldier, dedicated friend. Grace of God and the aid of your son. Those of us alive, please accept my most sincere condolences. Live in our memories. To you, my deepest sympathy. Colonel, I've got something you should know about. Yes. These two men died in Normandy. This one at Omaha Beach. Sean Ryan. This one in Utah. Peter Ryan. This man was killed last week in New Guinea. Daniel Ryan. The three men are brothers, sir. I've just learned that this afternoon their mother is getting all three telegrams. That's not all. There's a fourth brother, the youngest. He's somewhere in Normandy. We don't know where. That boy's alive. We're gonna send somebody to find him, and we're gonna get him the hell out of there. All right, Steven Spielberg. Um, Spielbergo. I guess one of the many benefits of being Steven Spielberg is that you don't just get to make your dream project; you get to make all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and um, making a you know huge World War II epic was something that he'd sort of been thinking about and kicking around for a long time. Yep. And uh, he's a crazy historian about World War II, so is his star, Tom Hanks. And uh, the level of production values and sort of the scale and scope of the storytelling is just right out the gate. Breathtaking, even by Steven Spielberg standards. It's like, you can tell that he really gave... He won an Oscar for Best Director, and I don't like to put a lot of weights on the Oscars, but... If Steven Spielberg's going to win an Oscar for Best Director, it might as well be for Saving Private Ryan. Ryan, it's it's an incredibly well-made movie. Um, it's sort of, it seems like the same introduction that I've given to all the films. That said, it does have its ticks and, and moans. But what I can't say enough good things about, and what is just sort of an unavoidable thing that we have to get past, really, before we can start reviewing the actual movie, is the absolutely amazing first 22 minutes of the movie. Yes. Which are... Uh, I agree with everything you've said. I, <laughs> um, the first 22 mo minutes of that movie, the whole opening uh, Utah beach scene, is amazingly shot, very convincing special effects, absolutely horrifying, visceral, first-person almost look at storming a beach under machine gun fire in the Second World War. At the time, I, you, nobody had ever seen anything like that on film. Like, veterans were upset, some of them, like, watching it and being brought to tears because they'd never seen anything that captured that experience more realistically than this movie. It was upsetting for people. The gloves were off in a way that we weren't used to seeing, even in a, in a, in a war picture. Yeah. And it, it wasn't just the violence and the chaos of it. I think it was the fear on the faces of the guys before they hit the beach. That's right. And the vomiting in the helmets. And the, the shaking. Of the, like, like, the sheer terror, the visceral terror of that. It makes... By contrast, the fact, you know, that we, we piss and moan about, you know, the mental health crisis and everybody's depressed and we don't know why and people have shaky leg <laughs> syndrome, you know. <laughs> we have two generations review, you know, our grandfathers and great-grandfathers, a lot of them were thrown into 
horrifying blenders of violence that are depicted here. And it's not fiction. It's not something you can completely unplug from. And uh, there had been war movies before. But I think Saving Private Ryan, what it really sort of brought, at least for me, was just the reality. Mm. The brutality. The randomness. The fact that like it doesn't matter if you're an altruistic hero figure. If you're standing in the wrong spot at the wrong time... Your head's it. coming off. doesn't yeah. matter. doesn't matter who you are. If you're the protagonist. Everybody's the protagonist of their own story, you know? Well, I know because we've talked about it before that you and I agree that, like another movie we talked about tonight the, the the movie feels broken into two chunks it doesn't feel like two halves or two different movies like in the case of uh, Full Metal Jacket but that opening sequence of half an hour however long it is really stands separate from the rest of the movie and that lasts long after you've seen it I know that after one viewing in trying to think about or remember the movie a month later I couldn't remember anything about it really with clarity other than Matt Damon I think especially the on the big screen and especially the first time you see it you are sort of so stunned and jarred by the first mm-hmm. the, the sort of the craziness of the first half it's the, an hour it's the way it's shot because we've seen Shell shock, I we'd guess seen gore things. before we'd seen horror on the faces of children going into war We'd seen people torn apart. We've seen all of these things in movies before, but what that opening sequence does is put the camera inside of the head of a soldier jumping off of the boat, right? You feel like you're jumping off of the boat with these guys. It's not some wide shot of 40 guys streaming off of a landing craft. It's a very, very, um, well, first person, to say it the third time. way of shooting the scene and it it really works and then that disappears for the rest of the movie we Whether don't do or not that it, it was an original quote unquote I guess could be debated but it felt like it was breaking new ground like it was it was it was a part it was separating itself and the believability the right the special yeah. effects of the tracer bullets and everything flying through the air I mean it, never, that kind of realism had never been achieved and once we get past that scene it turns much more into a conventional movie. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing, but I think because it starts so magnificently and so thunderously, and because you are, like I said, shell-shocked, yeah. that, that the first, the next half an hour almost means nothing to you. <laughs> you know? Uh, it's crazy. So, like, it's almost an hour of movie before the movie starts. By the time, you know, Tom Cruise's company, he's, he's sort of stripped of his company, and he gets folded into another group, and he sort of gets to pick this group of eight guys to run this insane errand to find this private Ryan who's lost his all of his brothers, all three or three of his other brothers? Three or four other brothers are all killed, and the, the army feels be, really bad for him. Yeah, the powers that be don't want... Uh, to send another folded flag to the, their mother, and they want him collected. Really, some some guy, some big brass guy, decides that it's easier to send eight men on a life-threatening mission than to write four condolence letters to the same woman. Yeah, um, it's a ludicrous premise. And but it's, it's also a premise that's debated by the characters in the movie. What I will say again, much like I said about all the guys in the boat in Apocalypse Now. 
You like the group. I like the group. I like all of them a lot. They're all distinct. They're all good actors. They all have like good things to do. Yep. I didn't feel like anybody got short trip. Gene Bono of BC, who spoilers, one of the first people out of the movie, I feel has a full complete arc. I know him, I like him, it hurts when he dies. His job is done well, you know? Uh, and, you know, casting throughout the movie. And you're going to see faces uh, again, and this happens again and again in all these war movies that uh, you're either famous subsequently or were big names at a time or were just weird weird people to see all of a sudden. All of a sudden, Ted Danson shows up for a few minutes, or Nathan Fillion, or Paul Giamatti, or Brian Cranston, and I could go on and on and on. And there's, it's very entertaining, it's very engaging, but it's obviously just not the same level of filmmaking or just general effectiveness that that first half hour is. In a way, it's a movie that's kind of crushed by its own success. <laughs> all of the chaos is packed into that first chunk. I, you say, like, all of the chaos and the craziness of the opening half, like, they never quite get there again. Yeah. I think almost worse than that, I don't think that the movie manages to say anything more than, the, than the, they managed to in that first half an hour. I'm going to say a lot of great things about the rest of it, but everything that this movie has to say and really is laid on the table right up front is done in the first half an hour, and there's still two hours of movies done after that. And that's a fine and entertaining two hours of movies, amazingly executed, amazingly acted. Like I have a hard time to really like criticize anything on the filmmaking, but Mm -hmm. like I said, it's almost like that should have been a, a short film that accompanied it or whatever. But like. Well, that is the big problem with the movie is the book ending scenes with the aged um, veteran visiting the veteran. grave. Yeah, yeah. It's it, we find out that it's Ryan, but I which is pretty important. But I think that I feel like in movie language the that we're almost tricked in, into being told that it's Tom Hanks. Uh, it, it's pretty Im- implied that it is Tom Hanks by the fact that we fade directly from his face onto Tom Hanks. Well, that's what I it remember, but when I watched it again, they don't. There. The first thing we see is the beach, but the last thing we see fading out on the old man is his eyes, and the first thing we see of Tom, of Tom Hanks, Hanks is, is his, his eyes. eyes. And there, but there's an intervening beach There shot, are intervening saying? shots before that, but I think psychologically that, that deliberately or not ties us to it. It's deliberate. Yeah. But I just don't understand why we need a M. Night Shyamalan twist right at the end of that movie. I really think that them, well, the few remaining tattered survivors of the group and Ryan being rescued at the last minute uh, at the end and Ryan is safe and secure in safe hands and going to be sent home was enough. I don't think we needed the flash forward and I do think it's strangely problematic the dying proclamation that Ryan has left with the earnest speech I understand where it comes from, but it feels like this horrible psychological mindfuck to lay on somebody. You know? Considering the fact that Ryan did nothing except go to war and do and his job, his brothers. and then one day these guys show up who feel like they owe him something because of the shit they've gone through, and lay at his feet. Yeah. My death is on you. You better make it worth it, person. And it obviously affected him, like, over and above the fact that he's a veteran and he's a war. He's still shattered when he's 85. Yeah. That all of these men died for him, and that, like, he didn't ask them to do it, they just did it because they were following order, but it, it really fucked him up. And I like that they questioned the orders. I like that maybe that also helped him, right? Yeah. Like, he seems to have a big family that's loving and healthy and happy, and so um, he's turned out okay. 
there's there's things I like the scenes, but there it's just clear artifice. There's the scene where they have a sort of momentary quiet night in a church, and we get a monologue out of Giovanni Ribisi about his relationship with his mother. So that when he is later shot and is calling out for his mother as he dies, we sort of understand the poignance and significance of it. It's it's kind of hit hard, but it's so well executed that yeah. uh, you know I, I I don't mind it. Um, another one of the weird things that I want to say about Saving Private Ryan, and again, I like it, and it asks hard questions, and it is not easy. Our central character, who's played by mumbly sort of indie actor Jeremy Davies, and in this case, he's the sort of nerd who's pulled from the back of the lines to the front of them, that we sort of are to see this through. Wants to carry his eight-pound typewriter into battle. Yeah, bring a pencil, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I find I I like Jerry Dean Davis as an actor, but I do think that he is best used in supporting quirky roles. He is so strange that uh, to be the everyman, it's a weird it's a weird mesh. It's kind of horrible to put it this way, but he's a little off-putting because he's so odd and but, odd, like oddly shaped as a human being. He's not quite the right shape. I really did appreciate though that the person that I think the audience is most meant to identify with. Mm-hmm. It has this horrendous moment of cowardice in the movie that cost the life of a, of a friend that had saved his life many times over. Yeah. And uh, the morality of the movie is very strange. They spare a German soldier, and it seems like they did the right thing at the last minute. And then that German soldier shows up later and kills two of our main characters. Because Jeremy Davies fails to act and stop him. And then the lesson that Jeremy Davies has learned, I guess, is that war is hell, because when he takes the German's prisoner, he makes a point of killing that guy and taking the rest of the prisoners. So what, like, his journey is, is, is vague to me. In a way, it was more powerful that he froze on the stairs and that he failed so utterly. That, that that addendum that he actually finally did pick up the gun seems, I don't know, I don't know how to take it. Yeah. I, I like, and I kind of wish it was a different German that at least had shot Tom Hanks. The fact that he kills two of the eight guys, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, it kind of bothered me and it sort of felt like a connecting contrivance that felt more Hollywood. Contrived is exactly the right word for it. But it's so well executed when you're watching it that contrived doesn't enter your thoughts. It's when you're picking it apart on a podcast that it does. Mm. But again, I keep going back to that first half an hour. Didn't feel that at all. I just felt terrified, and I just hoped that they got to that beach. And that it had nothing to do with about their skill as a soldier, about the orders they were following. It's like, are they going to be in the right place at the right time long enough to get to cover? Could they have made a very similar movie, except where the mission they were going on was a mission that made sense, and still had it do all exactly the same things? It, 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 all of the set pieces individually worked quite well. I guess it's the... It's the overarching story that it's most problematic. What about what about the movie? What about the movie makes it like? What does the nature of the mission, saving this man because we don't want to do more harm to his mother, have to do with any of the important themes or messages in the movie? I don't think anything. And right. they do think if I did have a good answer for you, which off the top of my head right now, I don't, I'm going to confess, again, I don't think it would be anything that wouldn't have been eclipsed or accomplished by the make, first Make minutes. the movie about the, this group of soldiers lands, they have this har- harrowing ordeal, then they're assigned some 
dangerous but important mission. They go on it. All exactly all the same things happen. The, the story can be basically the same cost. thing, and the mission is accomplished at great cost. And you can keep the earnness. You can keep the bookends. All of that. Just don't be looking for Private Ryan, and then your movie doesn't seem contrived to me. And it's just that one little piece of the plot that seems silly to me, and that's why I have a hard time watching the movie without fixating on that. Watch Saving Private Ryan, I would say. Um, is it perfect? No, but it's it's a it's a good war movie. It's very it's a very good war movie. I just fuck Private Ryan. <laughs> I know you love Matt Damon. Fuck, I mean, get back to your job. You're here to get the Hun out of France and kick Hitler in the balls. Private Ryan can take care of himself. When they get to Private Ryan, all he wants them to do is leave him the fuck alone to fight with his unit and do what he's been trained to do, and instead they have to send him home to his mom and make him live with PTSD for the rest of his life. The end. Been kicking other people's asses for so long, I figure it's time we got ours kicked. What happened today is just the beginning. We're gonna lose this war. If you're gonna get killed in the Nile, it's better to get it in the first few weeks. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm so tired. I think I've made a big mistake coming here. We're going back into that NBA bunker complex tomorrow. Skook's a lot smarter than you think. Well, there's the beast. He's hungry tonight. There's something different about this movie than any of the movies we've talked about tonight. And I think that is that it, it feels like a movie that's being... The auteur, the auteur of this movie, uh, has lived it. Yeah, and, and you can tell the, that the guy who has, is creating this movie you're watching has been there. Despite it being star-studded, despite the Johnny Depp's and the Forrest Whitaker's and the, and the star spotting, it feels the most genuine in a lot of ways. Uh, and that that is because he brought the authenticity. Uh, he also brought his you know artistic menace. He's a famously difficult person, and uh, he, you know, there's a, a story Johnny Depp tells. He was a quite young actor at the time when he was filming a death scene and pouring his heart in it, and there's got rain and blood and all the guys holding on to him as he's sputtering out, and then he'd yell, cut, and say, fucking bullshit, do it again, and they would wow. reset and he would die, <laughs> and he'd say, fucking bullshit, and he would do it again. And Johnny Depp was into it, but a lot of the actors weren't. Yeah, Johnny Depp's insane. <laughs> right? right? Like, he's just nuts. And, like, the level of the brutality that they put into the training of these uh, these actors. And, again, we at the time, Willem Dafoe and Tom Berenger, they were names, but Platoon bumped them Catapulted up many them. notches. Yeah. And uh, every corner of this, whoever was the casting director, had an amazing eye. You know, there's... The, no really weak performances and there's good actors every corner of the movie absolutely there's no one that i that i don't believe in the movie and some of the characters are pretty outrageous but i managed to believe characters like bunny i managed to believe characters like barnes who's almost a cartoon evil person but somehow 
he seems to fit right in to the nightmare world that these guys live in. And the movie is somehow anchored by Charlie fucking Sheen. Yeah. Now, like, he hadn't become the monster that he has, you know, grown into now. Yeah. He, he hadn't a, been transfused with tiger blood yet at this point. He was a young, hungry actor who wanted to prove himself and was put in the uncomfortable position of being cast in a movie at least Basically partially. reprising his father's role in, in Apocalypse Now. Martin Sheen was his daddy and that had to play into him being cast and he had to on some level know that. Platoon 1 Best Picture, it's an, uh, it's an impressive fucking movie. He backed his shit Yeah, up. it's an impressive performance yeah. too. And that's what I mean. Like, Charlie Sheen is straight up good in it. Like, I can't really say another example of that. I mean, I'm not a Wall Street guy. I, I thought he was strong, fine in Young Guns, but it was pretty much hot shots, stupidity, and then drugs and porn, and then sitcoms for, for Charlie Sheen after this. Yeah. yeah. It made me a little bit sad watching it and seeing, like, look at all the talent this guy had. Yeah. So, for those of you who haven't seen Platoon, uh, <clears throat> none of you, we'll, we'll <laughs> gloss over it pretty quickly, that uh, it follows closely the story of a platoon of soldiers in Vietnam, Charlie Sheen being the central one that we follow. And we we sort were brought of in by, with newbie Charlie Sheen, and we, we watch him become a hardened veteran. Yeah, and, and we all we follow him through until he gets wounded and goes home. And the real main conflict, other than the obvious war that is going on, is this sort of war of influence of these two father figures represented by Willem Dafoe and Tom Berenger. I find Willem Dafoe is dependably awesome, Tom Berenger is not, but Tom Berenger is, is fucking so awesome good in as movie. Barnes. He's a terrifying villain. Just <clears throat> you understand some of what he does as a means for survival in this war scenario, but you know he tips well over the edge, and that's sort of one of the things we. Witnessed. But he doesn't do anything that Charlie Sheen's character might wouldn't eventually come to do if he stayed in the nom long enough. And again, right. it's at a the nod end of the, the film, thing, right? The yeah. apocalypse now is sort of elbowing in here a little bit. Absolutely, I mean, he he ends up having to assassinate Barnes because there's no other way for justice to be served, right? Barnes has tried to kill him. Barnes did kill Elias, his other father figure, the Willem Dafoe character, and uh, every horrible deed that Barnes does is, in his mind, out of necessity. Yeah. He has to kill Elias, because Elias, in his mind, is a threat and is going to get other people killed. It also re echoes and reinforces the arc established in Saving Private Ryan, where our central sort of innocent character's trajectory leads him to an act of murder. And that act of murder being, you know, some sort of <laughs> linchpin point lever into, you know, his becoming of whatever the next days. And usually in these films it means he's closer to Kurtz, he's closer to this jungle madness or war madness or whatever you want to say it, but I don't know. Or is it that in war the right thing to do is violence? <laughs> I don't know, I can't fully unpack it, but I'm not a veteran. There's and, uh, so many shared themes between all these movies and between this and Apocalypse Now in particular, but one of them is definitely, and it's spoken in both movies, the notion that murder in this place is a fucking ridiculous notion. Well, right, the we, whole country is a, is yeah. a giant murder at the, at this time, and the notion of charging someone with murder is in Kurtz's mind and in 
um, Barnes mind just absolutely ludicrous. Murder happens every day as a matter of... That's what we're here to do. We're here to do murder. And that was another piece... In their mind. I think that was shared that in Platoon that, you know, as I said, Apocalypse Now brought the sort of angle of the drugs. They, that, that's touched on in Platoon as well. But also, like, the psychological damage and moral decay. We witnessed the Platoon massacring a vis- village... Uh, we see a small sort of microcosm of that in Apocalypse Now when they kill the family on the boat. But uh, this is an entire village. And we see them make the conscious choice. Or at least represented through Behringer. Yeah. Uh, and part of it is it's hot and he's tired of hearing these people yell at him. And he knows that they were, you know, hiding guns and, and that, you know, <laughs> they would give out any information that they wa- would about their position. And. It's not what they're supposed to do, but it's what he's going to fucking do. Right? Yeah, and because he knows that the guy is a VC supporter. Yeah. And he's not wrong about that, but but he outright murders his wife right in front of their child. Yeah. Uh, and it's an inhuman act, and everyone around him is shocked by it, even, even the people who want to... Well, not everyone. Bunny wants to grease the whole fucking village, right? Yeah. But... And... and Charlie Sheen's character admits that, uh, you know, part of him kind of he fires to, rounds right? into the ground. He, in a way, is one of the instigating factors. That but day, we all loved Barnes. Yeah, he's he he was sort of willing to step to the line, but Bunny and Barnes showed that that element of character, who don't see the line or are willing to walk over the line. Yeah. And uh, it's as scary as I've sort of seen it realized in anything. And I think that was one of the things. That the that platoon brought and sort of the fact that there were ugly little booby traps or that like a lone soldier would be caught and left as an ornament to sort of taunt them, like the real horror. Yep. That they were subjected to on a daily basis. I think that that's the first time it was writ large in cinema, and at least that honestly, that I'm aware of. Again. <laughs> For me personally, that's definitely true. Platoon, yeah. uh, I watched when I was probably way too young for it. Yeah. Uh, and there isn't a moment in the entire film from the beginning to the end that feels contrived or silly or in any way difficult to believe. These yeah. feel like real people. Some of them you want to sit in a bunker and get drunk and smoke a pipe with, right? Because there's that element that he falls in with the pot-smoking hippies who are escaping the horrors around them by If you can partying. be a hippie in a war. <laughs> but yeah. And then there's totally the flip side of that coin, right? The, the other guys who are, are hostile to that mentality. Almost and, living for the violence. Yeah. There, there's a scene towards the end when Barnes walks in on their group and they're actually in the midst of talking about killing Barnes. Yeah. And he has heard it all, and he just walks right in and offers them a chance to kill him. Um, and he makes what I think is kind of a comical observation as he he picks up one of their uh, marijuana pipes and says, so you smoke this shit to escape reality? I don't need this shit. I am reality. And then he takes a giant swig of liquor. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm sure that was fully intentional, uh, because you know the, you can guess by watching the movie which group of guys Oliver Stone fell in with when yeah. he was in Vietnam, right? He 
clearly we like Elias, we don't like Tom Berenger. Um, and so that's where his sympathies lie. And in a way, revisiting Platoon uh, kind of makes me like, generally speaking, Oliver Stone more. As a rule, I'm not a huge fan of Oliver Stone's films, and that his reputation of being a difficult, kind of shitty personality, belligerent and abusive. I, I don't necessarily think you have to be, or that no matter what the cost in art, you know, you can be as shitty as you want in order to get, you know, this just so. I don't necessarily respect that kind of diva mentality. But the man's been to war. Yep. And I respect that. And he knows that. how to tell a story about it in pictures. And, uh, and I respect that, and I respect that he brought it so authentically. And I think, again, I said if, if Spielberg's got to win an Oscar for Best Director, I'm glad it's for Saving Private Ryan. You know, mm-hmm. if Oliver Stone's going to win Best Picture, I'm fucking glad it's for Platoon. Yeah, no movie has ever made me feel itchier and sweatier than Platoon. Right? Like <laughs> yeah. We get those opening when when he's first in the jungle and he's got the ants crawling around on his neck and he's hiding under the wet towel trying to keep all the fire ants out of him. And for the whole rest of the movie, I just feel gross. Like, yeah. thinking about how disgusting his socks and wet, rotted feet must feel. I mean, that's something a lot of war movies do, but... Platoon really does it well. And again, it's because they actually shot it outside in a really humid, hot, disgusting jungle. Yeah. And it must have been a nightmare to shoot. But holy shit, does it ever, does the end result when you do that, yeah. like The Thin Red Line, like these movies we're talking about? Um, I really like King. Do you remember which one King is? Right, the, the he's, big fella with the he's the big rifles. fella who keeps through the entire movie talking about how short he is. He's just thirty-two days in the wake-up, and every bit of filmmaking convention would tell you that he's not going to make it because he never stops talking about how he's just going to get out of here. <coughs> but King makes it, yeah, and I'm happy that King makes it. No, and you're not not everybody makes it most people you like die and a few people that you don't like live uh, I'm a big fan of the actor John C. McGinley yes. and he uh, shows up a lot in Oliver Stone's work uh, they seem to be tied at the hip creatively in that respect and I guess you can do worse to have you know if, you, if Oliver Stone calls uh, fuck I'll pick up the phone yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll be in his movie yeah um, Sight and, unseen. I, I like John C. McGinley's character because he presents himself badass but he is like uh, this awful wormy sycophant around Barnes, and when it comes down to it, you know. I again, I could relate to Jeremy Davis freezing on the stairs, even as horrible as it was. But there's something so awful about John C. McGinley hiding under this stack of bodies. Yep, and there's something even more awful, which is that after that, since Barnes is killed by Charlie Sheen, but ostensibly killed in the battle. He now gets Barnes' job. He takes over his squad, and he's, he's not utterly incompetent well. yeah. because he spent his entire military career just sort of sucking up to his superior officers and hiding from danger. This is not a leader of men, just and yet somehow, of all the people who have died, <laughs> the left or right, he, the, this shit hasn't managed to touch him yet. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Interesting, and again, something that I can believe. Absolutely. Minimalist... <clears throat> score and music in Platoon it, there, there's one recurring theme that is throughout the movie it's understated anytime there's a fight 
there's no action music. Yeah. When there's a fight, there's just no music. And it works really, really well. And it's not the only war movie to do that. It's not even the only movie on this list to do that. But I really notice it watching Platoon. That yeah. You'll get ten minutes into a, into that big, huge, climactic action sequence at the end of the movie, and you realize there hasn't been one lick of orchestral music anywhere. It's just been the sights and sounds of what's happening, and that's more than enough to keep your attention, to keep you mesmerized. Let's do it. I just gotta say, man, this uh, Horrors of War director masterclass, it's, it's between the directors, the movies, the different approaches, and like just the quality. It's up there with one of the hardest ranks. This is brutal. To do. It's I brutal. hate you. Uh, what was your least favorite in air quotes? Uh, <coughs> what ranks sixth place out of these six movies? Well, I won't movies? repeat the caveat we've already given for all of these movies, which is that they're all very good movies. Yeah. Check them out if you're in into Sixth that. place is Apocalypse Now Redux. Yeah. And it would not be anywhere near that low on the list if it were the theatrical version of the film. But... I have not met a movie yet that needs to be three hours and 15 minutes long. No. I just... It'd make two movies. Seriously. It, it, I just couldn't put it above any of the other f uh, five movies because of the problems that came along with it being so huge and so... The length... The, it, just mixed something up that long carries a lot of baggage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number, uh, number five is The Thin Red Line. And it, it sounds weird to say out loud that it's better than Apocalypse Now. But it's not. It's only better than Apocalypse Now. <coughs> Redux. What it does right, it does right well enough to beat out the super long <laughs> Apocalypse Now Redux. Number four, I gave to Saving Private Ryan. Which is a movie I felt like I was mean to and didn't speak eloquently about when I reviewed it. But... Um, we have to pick pretty hard to find chinks in the armor of these movies because they're all good. Uh, Black Hawk Down, I gave third spot. And if I were reviewing the regular cut of Apocalypse Now, I think that's where it would be. would right. be in third place above. So it would jump three places up the list rather than two. Um, so have I lost you? Are we still in the same neighborhood here, or have I already lost your list? We're shopping in the same store. We're shopping in the same store, but I've already lost the... Yeah. Okay. Uh, I thought that where we were going to differ was on one and two, and I picked for number two Full Metal Jacket, um, which is probably not the movie I would have picked if we hadn't if I hadn't rewatched them both before right. doing this podcast with you. Um, I hadn't watched Platoon for a long time, and I was sort of surprised by how excellent it remains to be. <laughs> I didn't expect to watch it and come out going, wow, I think that might be a better movie than Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Again, I'm not sure if it is, but hey, however, it plays that's out, what I'm picking. In, all of these movies are in good company. So like, Platoon sits in number one, even though it has nothing to do with Remembrance Day. Yeah. <laughs> Not a Commonwealth war movie, but an extremely solid war movie that I could not find uh, 
a, a significant flaw in. Right. I don't think we're going to get into any serious fights about this. Okay. Um, we're, there's, there's two reversals. We meet in the middle. Uh, I actually put the thin red line at the bottom of the list. Mm. Uh, I think it's a movie that's a little bit at war with itself. I think it's a beautiful movie in a lot of ways. And there's like great peaks and low valleys. But the fact <laughs> that the movie felt like homework returning to it, the way that none of the other ones did, sort of said something about the movie to me, or at least how I felt about it. So I put it at the bottom of the list. I put Apocalypse Now Redux in fifth position, and I agree with you that it would be higher. In a way, it was a sort of saving grace that it was the Redux, because the list would have been even harder to, to stack otherwise. But much like... Except we'd have agreed on last place. Yeah. <laughs> much like uh, the Thin Red Line, it's kind of at war in itself. Like, some of the stuff in the movie works fantastically. Other stuff either doesn't work or is superfluous. It's got more fat on it than there needs to. And I think I could say that to a smaller degree about the theatrical cut, but the redux is unwieldy. Pogs now is held in high esteem. I just, for some reason, could not put it at the bottom of the list. I don't know. I now we're going to get closer to, to agreeing, because in fourth position is uh, Saving Private Ryan. Everything the movie accomplishes, it has done by the 30-minute mark. And there's yep. still two hours to go. And, like, it's a great two hours to go in a lot of ways, but... But the movie, it's premature ejaculation. Yeah. Uh, at large. And we're also in agreement that uh, Black Hawk Down... I think people will be surprised at how high maybe Black Hawk Down is ranking, but uh, a lot of times I talk about with horror movies, is what was the goal, what were they setting out to do, and did they achieve it? And how far did they stray from that said purpose, which several of these movies meander all yeah. over the place? It's focused, and it sort of shows us the nightmare chaos of the situation of the war, of like a situation that just gets perpetually worse and worse and worse. Like, the stakes just are super wrapped in it and uh it's got a real energy it's it if it's the closest to an action movie i guess that we come from these but it's still very much a war picture check out black hawk down if you have i think if, if there's a movie on this list that people might not have seen it'll be black hawk down but these are all pretty well-known movies uh and then we're gonna yeah you're, you're right we reversed the top two i put platoon in second place um it's not an easy thing for me and when it's not an easy thing for me, I fall back on personal things. And uh, yeah. I, I watched the Full Metal Jacket on the couch sitting next to my daddy. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, like I said, had that traumatizing experience of seeing it too young and being genuinely disturbed and haunted by the Gomer File thing, mm -hmm. suicide, because I, I watched it before I was capable of processing it. Like, it, 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 I, it hit a nerve. And, and maybe that's personal and maybe that sort of cooked the books. But I have to be real, and uh, for me, Full Metal Jacket just just edges us out on top. Well, and that's perfectly it was, fair. It Those was two, not easy. It was not an easy thing. The two places where we were reversed were the two places where I was really hum and hawing about the list. Was yeah. was picking between those first and last positions. Well, once upon a time, I would have called myself a Kubrick fanboy. Right. I, I can't call myself that after after ranking Platoon ahead of it in a war movie contest, but. Uh, I, I can't rightly say that about myself anyway, I guess. Full Metal Jacket has humor and satire in it that Platoon lacks, and that's true. But 
It's not as real. But Full Metal Jacket also has pretentiousness in it, and there's not one moment of pretentiousness anywhere in Platoon. And again, on a different day, my list might have been slightly different, but today, there it is. All right, well... Thank you so much for coming back and doing another podcast yeah. with me, brother. I really do appreciate you doing my Remembrance Day edition of Rankin Review. It was fun. It got pretty late here tonight, and I got a little bit droopy, so <laughs> forgive me if I was mumbling, everybody. <laughs> I have no idea what it could have possibly been like to actually personally live through the experience of war. And I don't think being a student of film or watching or talking about six movies really would do that justice. I applaud the effort of these great directors in trying to accomplish it, but I don't want to downplay the value of veterans in the world and that they do deserve respect and that I hope nobody interpreted this episode as being dismissive of Remembrance Day or of veterans, anything of the sort. If I thought these movies were propaganda, I wouldn't be talking about them. My name is Larry Parsons, I'm your host and Random Canadian, and thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review, and we'll be back to more normal, uh, sort of more normal themes next week, so I hope you guys enjoy that. And please do tell your friends about Rank and Review. Leave a positive review for us on iTunes. That really helps the show along. Uh, Seek it out on Facebook. And uh, thanks, you guys.